Psychology Nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast on psychology out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with my co-host, my friend, a social ecologist, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dengis. How are you, Georgina? I am doing very well today. Yeah. And how about you? I should be nice enough to ask you how you're doing. How are you doing, Ryan? I am doing well. This is the point in the show where I feel compelled to tell everyone the date because um, it. So it's March 30th. This is going to actually probably go out in a, almost about a month. And the reason I feel compelled to tell people that is that the situation changes daily uh, during the COVID crisis, and. Uh, so anyways, right now I'm doing, I guess, fine, which is sort of how everyone I talk to is doing. Who knows how I'll be feeling on, uh, you know, April 30th. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, which is just sort of, so, oh, wow, is that Bo? I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. This is what happens when you work from home. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I fully expect to have... My kids are doing virtual PE right now downstairs, which means that someone's going to get hurt before the end of this phone call so, <laughs> as they do their virtual physical education class. Um, awesome. So, well, good. Well, it sounds like we're both fine. Um, we are here with a great guest talking actually this time. Uh, now, this is a, a guest who's been on the show before. I'll mention in a second, but she's going to be talking today about something totally different. Um, and that is uh, spider phobias and exposure therapy. So uh, first, though, I want to uh, encourage you to go find Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are in all of those places now with the handle at Psych and Stuff. Um, I will admit that that um, getting on Instagram was really a, a product of the health crisis. I was bored one night, and I thought, oh, I should probably start an Instagram account for Psych and Stuff. And so now we have an Instagram account. Um which is fun. So it, uh, it it makes less sense when we're all, you know, quarantined. But if we're all together, we can post <laughs> pictures of us together. Um, all right. So let's uh, let's get to our guest today. She has been on the podcast before talking about her incredible TEDx talk, Stupid School Security and Discipline Policies. She is brilliant. She is the funny director of the Writing Center here at UW-Green Bay. It's Dr. Jenny Young. How are you, Jenny? I'm good. Thank you, Ryan. I mean, I'm 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 doing as well as we can all be doing in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which, so. which I was thinking it's kind of funny that we're talking about phobias, which are you know, by definition, fake fears, really. I mean, that right. it's, you know, it's an irrational fear. So so now we're in the, you know, there's actually something to fear now, which makes my debilitating arachnophobia seem really silly by comparison. But right. I mean, phobias are silly. That's what's one of their features. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's worth noting, and I'm not trying to minimize anything right now, but it's worth <laughs> noting that I spent a lot of time as an active psychologist trying to discourage people from washing their hands as much as they were washing their hands. And now all of a sudden, <laughs> right? We live in a climate where I'm like, nope, wash them more. Uh-huh. Keep going. <laughs> so, um, well, let's talk about because the the backstory here, uh, Jenny, is that I basically saw on Facebook once that you were doing exposure therapy to deal with a spider phobia. And right. I, you know, I've actually, it's funny because I've, I've worked with lots of people with phobias. I've talked to lots of clients. I've actually, and this is going to sound weird. I've never actually talked to anybody who's, who's gone through exposure phobia for, excuse me, exposure therapy for a spider phobia before as, as odd as that sounds, I just haven't. <laughs> So I got hmm. super intrigued to to talk to you about it and kind of learn more about how it happened and what what uh, the experience was like for you and all of that. So um I guess for starters, when did when did the phobia start? Have you always been scared of spiders? Yeah, I I always have been. And and I don't recall any one uh triggering experience or specific trauma or anything like that. And and according to my uh exposure therapist, that's not unusual. I, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. people do have an incident or something that you know that they can say it started here. That's that's mm-hmm. not the case for me. Okay, so it's just been forever. It's been forever. I remember being in elementary school and having um, 
our elementary school, so I was, I don't know, maybe third, fourth grade, something like that. I remember our elementary school librarian loved spiders and would frequently sort of force these very close-up and detailed photographs of them upon us in which she would try to convince us all that they were very beautiful. And I remember being sort of horrified by that, but it was almost more in a way that I just, like, as a little kid, I felt like there must be something wrong with her. Like, it was like, a a, that's too bad that, you know, she's mentally ill or whatever, and I'll just look away (laughs) from the spiders because this is clearly crazy. So I know it was, you know, it it was definitely a thing at that point. Um, But, yeah, I just, I've always been terrified of them to, I mean, an an inconvenient degree for my family. (laughs) Were you... Go ahead, Jean. Were either of your, I'm sorry, were either of your parents um, afraid of, of spiders? Because my personal experience, my mother was terrified of spiders um, to, a, to a point yeah. that my people, yours, as I'm looking forward to hearing about your experience, but <laughs> I feel like in some ways I inherited either through social learning theory or genetics, who knows? Um, right. Sort of myself. And and that is apparently um, very common to inherit that fear. My my dad's definitely not afraid of spiders, of spiders at all. My mom doesn't like them, but I definitely wouldn't say it rises to the level of a phobia. My my brother is the same way I am. Oh, like he, really? he has to drink. Yeah, he, he has to drink to kill spiders. In his, oh, in wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which which is not the healthiest coping mechanism, yeah. but apparently uh, effective for him. Yeah, he he hates them about as much as I do. You know, thinking about your teacher, it's um, it's common for me. I mean, I think you know when you're not afraid of something, it's hard sometimes to imagine that other people are, um, especially if it's right. something you really like, you know. And so mm-hmm. I remember yeah. once when I when I was a kid, I had a new hamster, and I wanted to mm-hmm. show my grandmother so badly. I was like, oh, I've got this new hamster, and so I went and like got it from his cage, and I brought it upstairs, and she immediately started to scream. <laughs> and I, that is when I found out that she had a rodent phobia. And yeah, it, it, my, it, it never occurred to me that this was a thing that she, you know, that she might have. You know, that, that this, it was this cute little hamster. How could anybody be scared right. of it? Yeah, my grandmother, same thing, terrified of mice and, and all rodents, but especially mice. And I always loved mice. I thought they were adorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should come to my house because we have quite a few of them. <laughs> so I've just covered over the last couple of days. Um, wonderful. Um, so how, when you say, you said something, and I don't want to misquote you, but you said something about it being um, like disruptive to your family or something like that. So yeah, how, yeah. how bad is it or what has that meant to your family? Well, we lived, I grew up in in the middle of the woods uh, in a house that was, like verging on more cabin-like than house-like and a very old, old, like rickety house. And we had a lot of wolf spiders that that mm-hmm. I think mostly came out of the basement, but every now and then they'd come upstairs. So number one, yeah. I would throw a fit every time I had to go in the basement, which was fairly frequently because that's where our laundry was and everything. So I'd go down there and you know, scream the whole, of course I was melodramatic too, but, you know, I'd, I'd go down there and I'd see one and I'd scream and I wouldn't look up and I wouldn't look down and I'd throw things randomly into the washing machine and, you know, turn all the white colors and turn all the colors white. And so, it, it, you know, just sort of annoying stuff like that. But I also, you know, I remember at, at one point one of the wolf spiders made its way up to my bedroom and I, of course, screamed until my dad showed up and by the time he showed up the wolf spider had scurried off somewhere and I mean it was months before I would sleep in my room again I just slept downstairs on the couch I made a little bed for myself down there and, um, so I would just I would do annoying things like that I also remember since my brother and I were equally afraid one night one of the wolf spiders came upstairs when our parents weren't home I think we were teenagers and, and somehow the best plan we could think of, because we wanted to kill it, but we didn't want to get close to it. It was very large. So he got almost like a boulder outside that we threw at the, at the spider. And somehow, <laughs> somehow missed. 
And we, we responded to that by, this is getting really violent, but we stabbed it with a butcher's knife, but like a long oh, butcher's knife. Oh, I know, yeah. And, <laughs> and like, this sounds funny now, but we were very, like, we were terrified of the spider. We didn't think we could stay there with it. We didn't know when our parents were coming home. So I think we just created a lot of, like, uh, drama over the spiders. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. When I was a when I was a kid, I went to um, I would my grandparents lived in Arizona, and that's where my dad was raised. And so, you know, a place known for lots and lots of spiders. And two things that happened: one is my my dad would tell me all the time these stories about him as a child sleeping in the attic at their this like cabin that they had, and mm-hmm. he would say, "Oh, you know, I'd be woken up by scorpions or by spiders crawling <laughs> all over me." He'd share these horrible <laughs> stories with me, yeah. and then, and then we'd also go to. So there's this place in in near their house called the Desert Museum that we would go to, and it's. I mean, this is a basically a big zoo for animals that live there. So the whole premise when you get there, especially when you're in the you know the insect house, is mm-hmm. this is all stuff that lives here, and. So you're walking through and you're seeing these massive centipedes and these giant <laughs> spiders and all these things. And then I go back to my grandparents' house and I sleep on the floor. And I would have these <laughs> horrible, horrible nightmares where I would just wake up certain that these bugs were all over me and needing, like, oh, yeah. you know, trying to climb in bed with my dad or whatever. And so <laughs> there was... Just this miserable, miserable experience for me. But so I have a general sense, even though I've never considered it like as bad as a, you know, like qualifying as a phobia, I definitely have mm-hmm. a sense for how scary it can be um, when you just sort of convince yourself that, that, yeah, I would not you. have been able, I would not have been able to sleep <laughs> a wink in that scenario. Yeah. Oh, it was horrible. No. Yeah. 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 So. So what um what made you decide you wanted to to see someone about it? Well, there were three clarifying moments in in the last right. few years. So the first was um I, I moved here two years ago, two and a half years ago from Ohio. And so this is when I was still in Ohio and I was driving down a um like a state highway, so four lanes, like two lanes each side and a and a turning lane in the center. And I flipped my visor down because it was funny. And see, I'm almost getting out of breath, like retelling this story because it's so awful. Um, I don't know if you know what a daring jumping spider is, also called a bold jumping spider. But they're they're these, uh, black, hairy. They're they're black and hairy, and they have like white dots on their back. They're just awful. Oh and my I gosh! My, I know. Oh yeah, like really, like like. Like tarantula, like I mean, not as big, oh. but like kind of like a oh, okay. Yeah, they're just terrifying. <laughs> while you were talking, that yeah, is they're bad and they're fast because they're jumping spiders. Yeah. So I flipped my visor down, and even like as I'm talking to you right now, one of my own hair got on my arm, and I just freaked out. It's bad. It I hit my own arm right now. Um, <laughs> so. We we had these spiders around my house at the time, and when I first flipped the visor down, I just kind of saw it out of the corner of my eye, and I said, I heard this little voice. It may have been the voice of God. I'm just kidding. I heard a little voice <laughs> in my head say, hey, don't look at it. Don't look at it, because I knew if I looked directly at it, like it was over. I was going to crash the car or something. So I think I did scream, but I didn't look directly at it, and I swung into the turning lane. And just, like, threw the car in park and jumped out. So the car's still running. I'm in the turning lane, and there's there's four lanes of traffic, two on, on each side of me whizzing by. So, oh. so I thought, well, I needed a plan, right? The spider was still... Um, <laughs> It was still at my visor. I called everyone I could think of to call. Nobody answered the phone. Um, so my next plan was to fight the spider with my snowbrush. I had a snowbrush in the back. Okay. So, there right. You go. So I, right. Yeah, that's logical. So, so I grabbed the snowbrush and I knew it was a one-shot deal. Like, because if this thing got away, then I had no, I, you know, I had no plan. So <laughs> I took a good, I took a good jab at the at the spider and and I missed and it and it 
it went somewhere and I couldn't see it. So, <laughs> so I, I, I think I, then, then I started crying for a while. And so picture, I'm in the turning lane with my car running, holding a snow brush in July and crying. <laughs> right, so it's like a weird scene by anyone's estimation. Right. Um, and I, you know, I jabbed a couple more times in the general vicinity to see if I could get it to come out, and I couldn't. Um, then my next plan was to just, and I real, like, I do know how crazy this sounds, but it was not, in the moment, this was not at all crazy to me, and it was my true, genuine plan. This is what I was going to do. I was going to abandon the car, walk somewhere so I wasn't in the middle of the four-lane highway anymore, call a tow truck, have my car towed to the Subaru dealership and just trade it in on a new car. <laughs> that was okay. my plan because I thought I can't just drive around with a car with a daring jumping spider. And I'm like, that's crazy. That's right. not safe for anybody. It wouldn't be responsible. So that was my plan. And in the midst of me coming up with this plan, another, um, a passerby took pity on me and kind of approached me like you would approach someone you know, who who was very clearly mentally unstable and asked me if I was okay. (laughs) And I explained to him what was going on. And he, um, he looked relieved when I told him it was a spider and he said, Oh, my wife's afraid of spiders too. And he got in the car and like flips my visor up and down and moves things around. And he actually found it and killed it with a paper towel. Wow. At which point I went on my way. So that, that was a a hero. Yeah. That guy was a hero. Yeah. How did you know that that was the original spider? How do you know that that was the original spider and not another one? Yeah. You mean like that there could have been more? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. I know. This this is a good point. (laughs) I mean, I'm always worried about spiders (laughs) in my car. Well, yeah, no, you're probably right. After that, what I started doing, so I did keep the car, but what I started doing was – even though I, even though we had a garage, whenever it was a real hot, sunny day, I'd pull my car out of the garage and put it in direct sunlight because I thought then it would bake any spiders, like bake them to death if there were spiders in my car. Wow. Nice. I know they're always saying, like, don't put your dog in a, you know, a closed car. And, like, if it, would kill a, if it would kill a dog, it would kill a spider. So. Right. So that got me through <laughs> for a few years. Um but the next two the next two incidents are shorter. Do you want me to tell the other two clarifying yes. moments or okay. Very much, um, yes. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the the second one was actually is related to UWGB. So I was I was on the job market and I did four um campus visits and the first one was here at, at UWGB and um I had an offer from GB and my last campus visit was at Georgia Southern University, and I got that offer while I was still there. So I was, I was had you know I had to make a decision. So I still had another day or so before my flight back to Cleveland. So and and I there were things I liked about both schools, like that I really really liked about both schools and about both programs. So it was, it was going to be a really really hard decision. So. I decided to go out for a run to, to like, mull it over, you know, and I thought I'll clear my head and make a decision or at least think about it. So I I found a trail that was close to my hotel, like a, you know, metro urban trail kind of thing, and I, I got to the trailhead, and there was a big sign, like an actual sign, and I'm a person who's always looking for signs in the universe, but this was, which I realize is not, like, a psychologically um, healthy way to make decisions, but anyway, so th- but this is an actual sign, like a, a physical sign, and it was a sign warning people about the banana spiders in coastal Georgia that apparently come in off the banana trucks, but they're like gigantic, and they and they're all over this trail. So I took one look at that sign, turned around, walked back to my hotel, called David Corey, and accepted the position at UWGB. <laughs> because I did not want to deal with those banana spiders. And I'm very happy that I made that decision for lots of reasons. So I'm actually grateful to the banana spiders because I'm I'm thrilled to be here. But but I do realize it's maybe not a good way. I'm kind of grateful as well. 
Yeah, no, <laughs> I am too. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so that was number two. And then the third incident was uh, just very quickly. I, I was living in a fourth floor apartment right downtown Green Bay. And there's a lot of spiders down by the, because I'm right on the river, which I didn't realize when I signed the lease, or I'm not sure I would have, but I was out <laughs> on my balcony, like, trying to knock webs down, which I do every single day. Every day, I knock the webs off the balcony, so as to not create a hospitable environment for spiders. <laughs> okay. I, re- I read, I read that, you, that you shouldn't do that. So, I mean, that, yeah, you don't be hospitable to them if you don't want them. So, I I was doing that, and a spider appeared. It jumped out from nowhere, and I freaked out, and I hurled the broom over the railing and four stories down to the sidewalk below. <laughs> and thankfully, there was nobody there, but I thought, like, that could have really injured somebody had there been, you know, somebody yeah. harmlessly walking down the sidewalk. So that was it. I'm like, I, I, this needs to be addressed. It's it's become too disruptive and, frankly, dangerous for other people. So that's <laughs> That's how I ended up in exposure therapy. <laughs> oh wow! Well, I'm I'm still glad about the second story that things worked out the way it did. But I understand. Me too. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I understand. Really <laughs> yeah, I understand how the first and third, uh, you know, were were disruptive enough that you would want to talk to someone. Right. So. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, so did so, you call about it? Like, did you approach it? Like, I'm just gonna Google, like. Either therapists or something. yeah. Well, like first, how did you go about finding a person? Right. So first, I um, I thought maybe there's a self help book I can read, right? Because that, that's always mm-hmm. my go to. Like somebody's <clears throat> written about this, I can read about it, and you know that'll help me. And there are, but the really stupid thing about self help books for arachnophobia is that all the covers have a giant picture of a spider on them. I couldn't even I couldn't even stay on the Amazon page to like scroll through them, which to me just seems kind of insensitive. So yeah. So then, so I'm on Prevea 360 for insurance. So I just I, and honestly, I did not think that this would work. I thought my insurance is not going to pay for exposure therapy, but I decided to find out. So I called Prevea Behavioral Health and told them what my issue was. And I didn't know, you know, who would be able to help with this in particular, but it, it turned out they actually have a therapist uh, staff who specializes in exposure therapy. And she's one of the only specialists I think there's only two in northern Wisconsin, and, and this woman just happened to be on my plan, and they said you need to get – I had to have my primary care provider, like, backup that I needed this, which, I mean, I don't talk about my it works, my arachnophobia <laughs> when I go for my sinus infection or whatever, but, but for whatever reason, she was like, yeah, I think she probably does need that. So, so um, yeah, that's that's how it started. Wow. So what's yeah. the treatment like? How um, what uh, kind of walk us through what it was, what what you did in sessions and things like that? Sure, and I'm and I'm still doing it. Like I'm I'm not oh, I'm okay. not fixed yet. <laughs> um, although although we're on a we're on a break now because this is not deemed a quote unquote essential medical um, experience okay. during COVID nineteen, which um, which of course makes perfect sense. Um, so exposure therapy basically. Well, and YouTube already know this, but since we're doing the podcast, um, operates on the principle that you can't maintain the same level of fear at the same for the same thing over time. So the um, example my therapist gave me is she said, think of seeing a horror movie. The first time you see it, you're going to jump out of your skin every time someone comes around the corner and your heart's going to beat fast and you're going to sweat or, you know, whatever your symptoms are. The second time you see it, it's still going to be scary, but it's going to be a little less scary. The third time you see it, you, it's probably not going to do much of anything to you. And that just continues until it doesn't affect you at all. And that's just how human minds work in, in response to fear. So the whole idea of exposure therapy is to slowly and incrementally expose you to whatever you fear until you don't fear it anymore. But the key I used to think that the key was being brave. Like if I could just be braver, right? If I had more courage, I wouldn't I wouldn't be afraid. And 
my therapist said that that's not it at all. Like, go ahead and be afraid. That's fine. Your job is to stay there in the terror. Like, instead of running mm-hmm. away from it, you have to really sort of embrace it and sit through it. It's in sitting through the fear that you get to where you're less afraid. So to that end, we started with, um, I just looked at still pictures of spiders on Google Images. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, how if you look at, if you if you Google into something, you get that sort of grid, right, of, of all the different mm-hmm. little thumbnail images. So, and and I started with fairly, like, innocuous spiders, baby spiders. I started with baby spiders, actually. <laughs> um, cute, adorable so I, baby spiders. <laughs> right, yeah, cute, adorable, right. And I tried to convince myself they were, I tried to, yeah, develop empathy for them by telling myself they were babies and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so I, I graduated from, oh, and then you chart your um, SUDS, your SUDS level, and that's an acronym for Subjective units of distress. So I would chart my SUDS level during each exposure, and the exposures were five minutes at a time, three times a day, whatever it was. So I'd start and look at these pictures of baby spiders for five minutes, you know, three times a day. Um, and, And then along with this, so this is where it gets more complicated. When I when I went to meet with my therapist the first time, in in my mind, which I realize now this sounds kind of ridiculous, I wanted to put out this image that I'm this like super together person, and you know I have a professional position and I'm very organized and very calm. I just have this one little quirk that I'm like really afraid of spiders, and and I tried to like almost explicitly be like everything in my life is going great, but you know there's just this one little thing. <laughs> And <laughs> they've never heard that before. So that's right, right. Oh, right, exactly. They don't realize, yeah. And about I have a friend with a spider phobia. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> about um, five minutes into the first session, she looked at me and kind of cocked her head and she said, Have you ever been di- diagnosed with OCD? Which I have not been officially diagnosed with OCD, but. I definitely, like, is it normal to check the burners 15 times before you leave? Probably not, but I still do. And I I have a lot of things like that. Well, I've now found out that phobias are part of the OCD spectrum, which I'm sure you both know, but I, I didn't know that. I thought they were two different things. Um, so, so then she wanted me to make a list of everything that was wrong with me. She's very ambitious, my exposure therapist. And she's had me work on, work on other stuff too. Um, but mainly, mainly, mainly spiders. So we started with still images, progressed to videos, which were horrifying. I mean, they, like, this is uncomfortable to do. Mm-hmm. I can yeah. imagine. And I I think to myself, you know, one of our colleagues at UW Green Bay, his nickname is the Spider Man because he right. studies. But he is like a spider expert, and he often I'm imagining you're probably not friends with him on Facebook because no, no, I am scrolling my Facebook like my feed. I like my finger accidentally touches a picture of a spider that he is posted. <laughs> this is Mike Draney, by the way. If you're listening yeah. to Mike, this is nothing against you, but like I literally sometimes jump when I get to his page and he calls them beautiful and and he I thinks know. that they're just lovely, just like your teacher did. And I think to myself, that must be terrifying. Now, I completely agree with you. And, and I have, I've actually interviewed Mike twice as part of my because along with going through the exposure therapy, I've been writing about it too, and so I interviewed I interviewed Michael twice about this, and um, yeah, his his beautiful animals. I yeah, I also take issue with what constitutes a beautiful animal, but they are you're right, they're frequently spiders on Facebook, um, <laughs> and he he was actually the so after the the still images and the videos, I I went to Mike's uh, spider lab on campus, which I would never have been able, this was, this was several weeks into therapy. 
which proves that it works. I mean, I'm still very afraid of spiders, but I would never have walked into a spider lab. Not only are there spiders in there, but there's pictures of spiders all over it. And I actually walked out with Mike gave me a dead tarantula in in a little um yeah in a little canister like a little clear canister and I I think I, he gives everyone one of those it's like a parting gift when you leave his right. office I'm sure <laughs> like, yeah yeah <laughs> so. I named her Michelle. I named her after him, like, because she's a, it's a, oh, she's a nice. tarantula. Yes, yeah, so I named her Michelle. Um, and she was the next step of my exposure therapy was to hold the dead tarantula. Which even now, I'm, again, that's one of those things if you told me I would, would do, I'd, I'd have said, you know, absolutely no way. I'm not, I wouldn't do it for a million dollars. But I, I have held the, the dead tarantula. And um, that that's kind of where I'm at in my in my therapy now. Brittany, I'm not sure I was supposed to say my therapist's name. A therapist who we'll call Brittany um, <laughs> showed up. This will this will show you how dedicated she is to her Michigan to her mission. She actually caught a spider at her house and brought it to Privea for one of my uh, exposure sessions. Oh wow! It was alive. Wow. Yeah, she had it alive in a takeout container. It was a hideous, <laughs> hideous spider. It was crawling all over the place. And for that day, which was so far the worst day ever of exposure therapy, she wanted me to. I had to hold Michelle in my hand. So picture, you know, holding your arm out with your with your palm up, and then balancing on on my forearm. She set the takeout container with the live spider in it that was running all over the place. So I was holding a dead spider and a live spider at the same time. And and I did that for nine minutes. Yeah. So nine minutes, you said. Nine minutes. The, the, longest nine, the longest nine minutes of my life. That's amazing. Wait, yeah. So was the, was the takeout box open? No. It was had spider a clear, it had a clear oh. lid on it. Like a take, like a takeout okay. thing from a restaurant, you know. So yeah, you could gotcha. see it, but yeah, yeah, it was yeah. bad. God, that is amazing yeah. that yeah. um that even in that that to me is a pretty short amount of time if you're counting it in weeks. Um, right, you exactly. To go from like ready to abandon your car forever to <laughs> to right holding. A spider within that coat where you can visually see it running around and a dead one on your other arm. Like that is miraculous, you know, like uh, advancement in, you know, like in dealing with that. Do you think that, um, that you're kind of like a, a star student? No, <laughs> no, actually. <laughs> no, I really don't. She actually at our first consultation, she told me that when when exposure therapy is done correctly, it moves really fast. And it, it these are so if for depending on you know what you're going to therapy for, it's sort of typical to go every other week or maybe even once a month. With exposure therapy, once you start, you go every week because I think there's something to that like I don't know momentum or or just the sort of constant desensitization. So I started in August, I think, and I and I held the the nine minute thing was in November, maybe sometime mm-hmm. in November. Wow. Um, so yeah, it moves relatively relatively quickly. So I actually show a video in my class of, and I will I will share it with people if they want to see it, um, <clears throat> of a woman who has one of the most intense phobic responses I've ever seen. It's to a snake. I mean, but she okay. is, like, curled up in the corner, you know, just unable to look at yeah. it, just hyperventilating. Yeah. And um, she, they work with her for uh, between three and six hours, but straight. And okay. th- the change over time is, ex- over the three to six hours, ex- extraordinary. By the end, she's really? holding it. Um, really? By the end. Yeah, and it's for the exact reason that you're, you and your therapist mentioned that, you know, when, yeah. when it's done correctly, you can actually make a lot of 
um, a lot of progress very quickly because um, because so much of it is just your body learning. It's what we uh, I don't know if your therapist has used the phrase incompatible mood states, but that you can't essentially be anxious and relaxed at the same time. And so if you can, it, your body won't really let you. And so you can learn to um, once you essentially to be relaxed, or over time you're going to learn to be. Um, relaxed and then say in, in some ways it's the same as so I don't I, I wouldn't call it a, again a phobic response but I am more anxious than most flyers and mm-hmm. by the, at the beginning of the flight I'm pretty miserable midway through the flight I'm not really noticing it anymore and then at the end I'm kind of fine and a big part of uh-huh. that is just that you you know it just it's the exposure over time it's a three-hour right. flight and by the end of it a lot of that has anxiety has just dissipated as I've gotten used to it through the exposure. Mm-hmm. And she that's one of the most common. She said they use um, exposure therapy for fear of flying. It, she does a lot of um, fear of flying and um, car accidents, people who've been in car accidents and are afraid oh. to get back in the car. And, and then right. um, germ, germ phobia. Which, okay. Like like you pointed out yeah. right now. <laughs> it doesn't seem that crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I would be honest, one of the things I've been wondering about the consequences of, of COVID-19 is just to what degree is this going to trigger a lot of phobic and obsessive compulsive yeah. responses in people over time? Right. That, you know, right. That, um, where, I mean, I was, I was talking actually to Georgina about this this morning on a separate call, but, you know, I found myself fairly anxious at grocery stores lately when I have oh, to go yeah. and things like that. And to what degree will that in a few months after I've been dealing with this for a while, it just become, you know, uh, essentially trigger other sorts of, of anxieties there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, was I wonder say, if, oh, go ahead. I was just going to uh, ask, do you think of that your, um, I don't, I don't know if success is a word that you would, that you would use, but the progress that you've made, through uh, exposure therapy has helped you in other aspects of your life? Yeah, I, th- I think it has. Just, just There's something really fundamental about that, or at least for me, that message that you don't have to be brave. You just have to tolerate the discomfort of being afraid. Because there's all kinds of things to be afraid of, right? I mean, legitimately or, or not. Um, so I think that's been if I could sort of distill the most powerful and and widely applicable message mm-hmm. out of the experience, I, I think that would be it. Hmm. Yeah. So the the goal here, which I, and I, I right now, am I confident I'm going to be able to do this? No, but I wouldn't have thought I could do it any of the other things I've done it is to, you know, be able to handle a live spider. Like I think we consider that success <laughs> if, right. if I can get to that wow. point. And, and Mike Draney has volunteered to provide the spiders um, once, oh. once we get to that point. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. When, I mean, I think if, you know, quite honestly, if you were able to get to that point and I believe you will and can, I, I think that would actually put you past most people. I mean, I, I don't right, know that, that's true. I, I don't talk to too yeah. many people who are pretty, who are very jazzed about hanging on to live spiders. I mean, I, I think just as a general yeah, right. rule, people are, are, are pretty anxious about that. So, I mean, that yeah. would be a, a pretty extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I wrote a piece about this for um, HuffPost and, I got an email in response to that piece from a person who told, offered to give me "quote unquote" tarantula lessons, which I mean, this is a stranger from the internet, right? So that's that's kind of yeah. terrifying. And, and and he's bothered to look me up. I mean, my email was not in the Huffington Post piece, so so he found me and he wants to give me tarantula lessons, and so that was kind of terrifying. But I I looked up his name and it turns out this guy is they call him the bug man of hollywood and he was actually the chief consultant for um the arachnophobia the movie he's been on uh he worked uh, with macgyver 
CSI, one of the various CSIs. So he's actually a real deal who's offering to apparently like he works with people to teach them to hold tarantulas. So, you know, I'm not I'm not buying a plane ticket to Los Angeles yet, which is where he is. But I don't know. It's an option. Oh, I like it. I've told myself that if I if I actually get a book contract out of this, and I've got a proposal like out there right now, and so I wrote into the proposal that if if I get a contract, I'll, I'll do this. I'll go to Los Angeles and take the tarantula lessons. I don't think I'm willing to do it for anything less than that. Right. <laughs> but I mean, talk about a combination of arachnophobia therapy. Like that would be a pretty good one, right? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And plus, I mean, yeah. that that sounds legit, right? I mean, arachnophobia yeah. is a, a pretty – I mean, even still, a, I mean, it, it is the prime example of a spider phobia movie that I can think of. Oh, Maybe yeah. Eight, well, and Spider-Man eight, 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 like is the latest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's uh, – that is uh, very, very cool. I, it's worth mentioning, by the way, if, if we, I can go on a tangent and just say that, listeners, Jenny is a fabulous writer. Everything she writes is hilarious. Well, I should say, yeah. when when she's trying to be funny, it's hilarious. I don't yeah. want to minimize any of your other. Well, and maybe sometimes uh, not, yeah. Which, which yeah. Fine any of your other ones. No. Yeah. So, I mean, so HuffPost, I know I've seen some stuff of yours in Medium, most recently McSweeney's, which was huge. So lots of great, great stuff. Thank um, you. What what else? Anything else we should know about the uh, the spider stuff? Um, I, I guess just that it's doable. I mean, I, I kind of feel like if it's doable for me, no matter you know what it, what the phobia is, it you know I, I I used to think that we had less control over our psyches than than we maybe do. I, I, I guess I'm I'm now more optimistic that we can sort of, you know, consciously and with a lot of effort and commitment, quote unquote, change our minds. Like literally change right. our minds the way they're wired, yeah. That is a really nice point. I it is it's funny how often I talk to people who kind of feel like some of those things are just locked in. To who they yeah, are, right, and right, and and I, I'd be the first person to say that if you don't want to change, by all means, mm-hmm. like, I, I would never say no. You, someone needs to do this. I think there are times when someone should, um, right. But I think, you know, at the same time, like I don't think people have to feel sort of locked into a particular phobia or particular. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way, um, right. And there's, I mean, it can be a, an awful lot of work to. Mm-hmm. to undo it as you've discovered but um but yeah yeah it's very time consuming it is time, like you have to be prepared i mean it's it, you know it's, it's like taking on teaching another class or something you have to almost think about it that way right yeah. well if the book happens and i hope it does yeah. i will i am excited to, to read it <laughs> um well, thank good. you yeah, i'm hoping um Gee, do you have anything else for Jenny, or should we move into rapid research? I think we should move into our rapid research review. Awesome. Jenny, awesome. are you going to stay on for? Uh, I, I would love for, to if it's okay. I, I yeah, want to hear the please. rapid research Absolutely. review. Yeah. <laughs> <Great>. Awesome. <laughs> I don't know. So, Georgina, there's a chance. There's a pretty good chance I'm wrong on this, but I think uh, I went first last time. No, wait, wait. Who went first? No, last time? I did. Oh, okay. I did. So, so you go first. Yeah, I even have in my notes that you went first. So I, this is what happens when I trust my brain. So here we go. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, here's what I did this morning: is I decided that what I'm going to be in the mood for in late uh, April is something that's going to some happiness. So I googled happiness. No, I didn't Google it. I went to PsychInfo and I searched for happiness <laughs> in the in the title. And I came up with um, a really cheesy title from a journal. It's called A Mindful of Happiness, How Mindfulness Shapes Affect Dynamics in Daily Life, right? So A Mindful of Happiness, right? Two words. I love that. Do you? Okay. I'm glad one of us. I do. I've been really critical (laughs) of titles lately. Sorry. Um, Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I took a shot at the title in the last episode, too, so no one complete me. 
Um, okay, so uh, this is a 2020 article, Roland Wenzel and Kubiak, uh, Journal of Emotion, which is a legit journal. So nice job, Roland Wenzel and Kubiak. Um, so what they did is they had their participants take part in a six-week randomized control trial with two groups, one that was low-intensity mindfulness training, and the other one was control. So uh, a control group. It was a waitlisted control group. So they got to do the low-intensity mindfulness training later. I want to start by saying I'm, I had not been familiar with the phrase low-intensity mindfulness training until just now, but something about it strikes me as sort of funny. <laughs> like, this is, like, don't worry, we're not going to work you too hard. This is low-intensity mindfulness training. If you want the like low-impact aerobics or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's I'm like the sign- jazzercise of mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> So it tells me that there must be a – I wonder if there's a market in there for high-intensity mindfulness training, if that's something we should be doing. But So what the tra- this actually sounds like moderate intensity because what they did is they had uh, training included weekly appointments uh, and then some computer-based guided breathing and meditation. It actually sounds a whole lot like what uh, you were just describing, Jenny, in a lot of ways, right? Weekly appointments mm-hmm. and some, some computer-based guided breathing meditation. Um they did, and this part is, this is another phrase that was new to me, and I've even done some of this research before, but they did what they called ambulatory assessment to capture momentary mindfulness. So literally people got texted while they were just walking around. They took out their phones and they filled out a quick survey. So that what yep. it allowed them to do is get their, like, kind of in the moment. So they weren't, you know, at the end of the day, reflecting back on the day, how mindfulness have I been, they were able to say, like, in this moment, as I got this text, what was I doing, how was I feeling, that sort of thing. And what they found is that the mindfulness training led to a variety of mindless, uh, mindfulness, not mindlessness, <laughs> mindfulness <laughs> skills uh, that were captured via that ambulatory assessment. It actually, so it, they didn't necessarily find that it led to, and I thought this was interesting, a, a lot of um, an increase in positive emotions, but it did lead to a decrease in negative emotions. So they were feeling down or feeling negative things less often as a result of that um, uh, momentary mindfulness. So uh, part of this is, and it actually this relates so much better to the topic than I realized it was going to. So I have gone on record many times as being someone who sucks at mindfulness. Like I am terrible at it. <laughs> and and I have tried. I've read books. I have um I've I've got an app that uh is supposed to to help me through it. I find myself getting frustrated all the time. So I think in some ways the lesson I might take from both what, what Jenny you were talking about and this study is that um if I if I work hard I can actually make some changes. I just have to uh to maybe be a little more dedicated to it and, uh, and and give it a little more time. So that's where I'm at. I would also add that one of the, the strongest premises of mindfulness is that you don't be judgy of yourself. Yeah, I know. I Yep. <laughs> and, and that last statement was full of judginess of yourself. And so yep. I would say that maybe letting go of some of that might make mindfulness more successful yep. for you. This is this is why I'm so bad at it, Georgina. I can't, I can't give up the judginess. So. Maybe maybe a high impact mindfulness is what you need. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that looks like, but we should search that out and see if maybe like massively high impact mindfulness might be right up your alley. I'm going to do some sort of mindful inter- interval circuit in my basement later. <laughs> move from machine to machine, just being mindful and not being critical. So, All right. 90 seconds of high-impact mindfulness. <laughs> I just I want you there screaming at me, you can do this, come on. <laughs> Stop judging yourself. Yeah. <laughs> So that was my wow. Well, I am looking forward to uh, to this this whole new world once we get <laughs> out of our stay at home thing, and I can come over there and literally yell at you. We're gonna do something. <laughs> I, I feel like that's true. I'm excited. So my my rapid research review uh, is strangely also maybe related um, to what we've been talking about today, and it's. Um, also strangely related to flying. And 
um, because I read recently um, that from uh, a publication by the American Psychological Association uh, that they are going to be changing policy about emotional support animals on planes. <clears throat> and that this was supposed to happen in April. And we all know that things, are, uh, things on planes are, are not exactly going well right now. And so I don't know when this might happen. But I was also thinking about how much more fear there will be while flying. And, uh, you know, after after we are free to fly again, I feel like much like Ryan's story about feeling anxious going to the grocery store, I don't think that that's going to stop overnight. I don't think we're going to be, you know, off of our stay-at-home orders and then just go back right. to normal. I, it's going to take some time. And so I'm thinking about um, what impact might uh, happen if we remove um, people's ability to bring animals on planes with them once we go back to flying. And um, this also was brought to mind because I am recently have been reminiscing about a trip to South Africa that I went on a study abroad with some students. Uh, and during one of my trips to South Africa, I bonded with this peacock who um, seemed enamored with me, and he slept outside my bungalow door, and he followed me around <laughs> wow. um, everywhere I went. And so students were joking that I should take him home with me as my emotional support. <laughs> Which would be awesome. And, so yes, awesome. and a week after yeah. that, they arrested a woman who tried to bring a peacock on the plane as an emotional support animal. And I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> that could have been you. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been me. I could have, uh, you know, had to stay in South Africa forever because <laughs> I wouldn't leave my my emotional support peacock, whose name, by the way, was Prince. Um, so, uh, what was his name? Prince. Oh. Prince. Prince. Huh. Yes, yeah. I named him that, though. So I, I'm interested in this, and I'm interested to see how this plays out. Um, but the article that I reviewed was actually about how this certification happens. How does an animal become uh, certified as an emotional support animal? And that, the fact that if you are seeking uh, therapy for um, a mental illness, that um, – that person should not be the person necessarily who is writing a letter saying that you uh, could bring an animal as an emotional support animal unless there is some sort of goal that it will lead to improvement in your psychological condition. Hmm. And if the animal couldn't support that goal, um, and the goal that eventually you would be able to fly without it, then your mental health professional should not be the person who is writing that letter. And I thought that was really interesting to think about. Yeah, I would agree. I, I hadn't really – so I'm a little bit familiar with how that process works, but not – mainly just because I've known a few people who've gone through it. But, um, or had their pets go through it, for that matter. Uh, but I, I didn't, um, I guess I hadn't really thought. I mean, it, it does feel like there are some, like, kind of ethical implications of, of being, or some, I guess, professional, uh, elements there about whether or not it's appropriate for the person who's treating you to, to essentially say, oh yeah, this person needs this. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, um, so the, the article that I read, I want to give them credit, um, by Bonas, Youngren, and Funkin, and it was published in the Professional Psychology Research and Practice. It's called The Certification of Emotional Support Animals, Differences Between Clinical and Forensic Mental Health Practitioners. So I, I found it really fascinating to imagine um, that there would be a different kind of mental health practitioner called a forensic mental health practitioner who would be better equipped 
to mm-hmm. decide if your animal truly is just an emotional support animal, but not truly a therapy animal, mm-hmm. which is would be more in the clinical realm. Right. Huh. Well, that That's is fascinating. strange. Um, so basically they're saying the animal can't just provide comfort. Like that's not enough to justify it. It has to be that, quote unquote fixing you or something, right? Ella? Right. Right. Providing yeah. an essential service for you because otherwise they make the argument, um, that there would be differences in service animals for a person with a physical disability versus a mental disability and um, that they should be defined the same. Hmm. That um, So they give the example like uh, uh, for a, a sort of a intervening with an impending panic attack would be a job that a service animal could provide to a person with a mental illness just the same as they can sniff out low blood sugar when a person is diabetic. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. I Yeah. It's a it is a very interesting and it's a it's an interesting fight that I think will be coming when we yeah. all start flying again. It's going to yeah. be um an interesting uh conundrum that we're I think we're going to have to deal with and the airlines are going to have to deal with as well. One, yeah. I, I have gotten a sense from a lot of people who are, are not in the, the mental health field at all, but are in the, uh, you know, whether it's they own, uh, who interact in like customer, with customer services and things like that, that, that the support animal situation has really gotten out of hand and people don't necessarily know how to handle it. And so you have more and more people bringing them and, it it ending up making other people in the facility uncomfortable at times right. because they're maybe scared of um scared of what that uh animal is you've got a lot of people kind of threatening lawsuits and saying well no you I have a right to have this here and so then you've got employers or I guess business owners being scared to ever confront anyone or talk to anyone and that so it does feel like there's a lot of it's just a super super messy situation for a lot of people. So I agree because it's it's possible that Jenny could be seated next to a person with an emotional support trainer. <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. that puts a whole different yeah. light on it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Because yeah. there was terrifying. another example yeah. in this article about um, an emotional support iguana, and All right. I'm um, imagining yeah. that. There are people with lizard phobias and I'm sure, uh, yeah. Just I peacock phobias, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Oh wow. And so it's it's an interesting thing uh to ponder, but we I think we have a little bit of a of a stay before this uh this actually is going to be addressed. But I think it's something interesting to imagine. And, and yeah. I agree with you. I wonder about the timing of trying to make that change now when, when people do get back to flying and are going to be as anxious about it as they are, yeah. that it, it might be that they want to hold off on any changes. Um, but who knows? Yeah. Well, that was very, very interesting. As we kind of finish up, Jenny, do you have anything you want to add or want to say? I uh, know. Just uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for being on again. It's always a, a treat. Sure. Where? So, if I wanted to just read uh, all your work, where would I find it? Uh-huh. Is it? Um, because <laughs> I know you. I mean, you've written at a bunch of different websites and blogs and things like that. But where is? Yeah. Is there a collection someplace? There's not a collection. No, it's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> there should be. That's on my list, you know, like I need to have a writer's website and I should have that, but I, I don't yet. It's something I'm working on. <laughs> a lot of it's on Medium and, you know, that it's in various journals and publications, but I do need to pull it all together. That's what I should do during the <laughs> pandemic, really. <laughs> <laughs> all right. 
I have very much loved your, and I, I don't even think I, I dislike Microsoft Outlook as much as you do, but I sure <laughs> enjoyed possible, your right? article. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sure enjoyed reading the uh, the Microsoft Outlook article you wrote. This is one of my favorites. I think I read it out loud to my wife afterwards. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Thank you. Awesome. So, um, let's see, uh, Georgina, where can, oh, Jenny, are you on Twitter? I do have a Twitter. It's, I think I have two followers, um, Chuck Ryback and, um, and Rebecca Meacham, I believe are my only okay. followers, but it's, um, <laughs> at, cause I forget that I'm on Twitter. I never check it. It's at <laughs> Jenner Young, J-E-N-N-E-R underscore Young, at Jenner Young. All right. Very good. And Georgina, where are you on Twitter? I am at G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-B, Georgina W-D. Perfect. And you can find me at Rye C. Martet, R-Y-C-M-A-R-T. You can also find Psych and Stuff at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram now. Um, Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Greenback. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and the engineer for today's show is Sarah Miller. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Valise. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Jenny Young. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungas. Keep being amazing. 